The Faculty Futures Lab is a project of the SDSU Initiative for Inclusive Leadership, a faculty-led effort to grow capacity to lead within institutions of higher education in complex and uncertain times. Funded by the President's Budget Advisory Committee. Learn more at fa.sdsu.edu. All guests speak from their own expertise and experience, not for San Diego State University. Welcome to the Faculty Futures Lab. My name is Joanna Brooks. I'm Associate Vice President for Faculty Advancement and Student Success at San Diego State University. And in this episode, we're going to speak with winners of our Faculty Forward Awards from fall 2020. Professors Linda Kopp, Aaron Riley, Sonia Schumann, and Mei Zhang. They're going to share their award-winning classroom innovations, including monitoring zoo webcams, making cheese and ice cream in home laboratories, and managing international time zones. Those are the kinds of challenges faculty are facing in the COVID pandemic context. Take a listen to how they bested them. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Mei Zhong. I'm uh, in charge of the international studies minor in PSFA. Uh, the project that I did is uh, specifically with a course uh, PSFA 501, which is uh, called International Studies Research. The program I run is International Studies. So this is a step in the program that requires students to go abroad normally. Uh, we all know that due to the pandemic, students are unable to travel abroad, uh, at least for this, this uh, past fall and, and the spring. So for that reason, I created this course. And uh, the idea is to help students who needed to go abroad and conduct their research with their international peers abroad to be able to conduct that research here uh, on SDSU campus. So the way to do that is to utilize our available international student population on campus and have them um, matched up or teamed up with my students so that my students could interview them uh, or survey them on the topic um, that they're studying. So essentially, that's the setup. I happen to be uh, teaching another class in an international studies minor, which is PSFA 280, which contains all international students. And that makes it possible. Um, that class is a collection of international students, most of whom in the fall are incoming first-year students. Uh, so we have four sections of them, and that's why I can make them available for my students in 501 to work with them. So that's basically the idea of the project. Thank you, May. Uh, Thank you. May. Mm -hmm. So, Aaron, why don't you tell us about your your project and your jungle behind you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Erin Riley. I'm a professor in the Department of Anthropology, and my specialty in anthropology is primatology, the study of non-human primate behavior, um, and hence my friends in the background. Um, so the 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 course that I taught this past fall that um, was um, I was anticipating some struggles with uh, was is my Anthropology 355 course. It's titled Exploring Primate Behavior. It's um it's a GE course, and so and it's a pretty big course. Like last semester, I had 180 students, and so it satisfies at the um, the it satisfies a GE natural science requirement. And one of the key goals with these GE courses at that level is to introduce students opportunities to analyze the natural world. Uh, via scientific methods. And so prior to the pandemic, I took advantage of the fantastic resources that we have here and in San Diego um, by having my students travel to the San Diego Zoo um, and our wild animal park to conduct observations, to learn how to conduct observations on primates. And so they do a whole kind of mini research project on that. And it's a lot of work for myself and the T and the, my grading, you know, my ISAs, but the students have always really enjoyed that component. And so I've, I've always wanted to retain it. Um, and so of course with pandemic, 
<clears throat> I was concerned, even though you may be aware the zoo was open and then it was closed and then it was open. I was very concerned about having my students still travel there, given that the primates are a huge attraction to people. People congregate around them. It gets very crowded. Um, and I just didn't want to have my students be put in that position. And so I, but I also didn't want to eliminate this component because that's a huge part of the reason why they're taking a GE course and one of the most favorite parts of the class from prior semesters. So I had them do a project uh, uh, or a series of projects virtually. So taking advantage of digital technologies that are available at a number of zoos worldwide, which are called webcams, that are set up to monitor behavior um, of whatever animal, not just primates, uh, in their enclosures. And so that's the tool that they used. We had some trouble with it, and I know you had some questions about that later, Sarah, so maybe I'll hold off for that. But Ultimately, I was pleased in the sense that the students still were able to get a feel for how we do primate behavior research and some of the trials and tribulations and got that experience of, um, of using a method to, to analyze the natural world. Cool. Thank you. Uh, Linda. Okay. Um, so I... Um, uh, was the instructor for the beginning food science course, which consists of a lab and a lecture. Um, it's kind of like one of the, the kids always, the students always say it's like their favorite class because what we do is we do a lot of cooking. Um, so it's kind of culinary, but we do culinary from the standpoint of the science aspect. Um, so we make a lot of ice cream, but we talk about crystallization and overrun and volume and stuff like that. So there's a whole bunch of science, con science concepts that are involved when we cook. But um, the lab is really fun. The lab is uh, at two hours and 40 minutes, and we do a lot of cooking, and they do a lot of eating. Um, and so everybody super, super enjoys that class. They always say it's their favorite. And from that class, it's an undergraduate course. So it's a beginning food science, and it's kind of the pivotal class where they go on and do advanced food science, and then they do food management and some other stuff. So this is kind of like the base or the the um, what a foundation for the rest of their classes in the nutrition department. Um, uh, and it was very challenging, which I'll talk about later, trying to do a, a, a cooking class online and have the same experience that the students were receiving in, in lab. Um, and the comments I get from the students every semester is that's the class where they form all of their friendships and go through the major together. And from that class, then they go on to advanced food science and they stay with the same group and they do their projects together. So it's a really, it's a really important base for the students to um, kind of jump off of. So it was challenging. I'm also a, a dietitian in pra private practice. Um, so I do a lot of you know, counseling and helping the students uh, figure out their career paths in terms of becoming a dietitian. And this course, Beginning Food Science, is required um, uh, for the students. They have to take it uh, to become a dietitian. So it's it's a pretty important class, and it's it's a fun class. And you're going to edit all this. Somebody's going to edit this out, right? Yeah, because I was just going to say uh, I was um, – before the pandemic, I volunteered in the nutrition department at the San Diego Zoo. So I, it was really funny. I, I, I helped plan the diets. So we got to go see the primates all the time and figure out their diets. So Very cool. I just wanted to, yeah, I wanted to throw that in. It was really fun. I love the zoo. Yeah. That's totally cool. And that doesn't seem like anything we should have to edit out, frankly, because uh, it's so well, cool. It was so cool. And I wanted to get on the study they're doing right now about the breast milk of elephants, but the pandemic hit and I, I didn't get to do that. But previously, I, I was able to help uh, Dr. Mark Edwards, who was the nutritionist at the zoo. We did a study on the nutrient content of breast milk in, my, um, in the pandas from incipient stages of breast breastfeeding to the end so we could see how the breast milk changed. That was really fun. That is so, so. cool. Yeah, it was very cool. But anyway, so then I was teaching beginning food science. <laughs> <laughs> and Sonia? 
Hi, uh, my name is Sonia Schumann, uh, and I teach in the School of Music and Dance. My primary thing is obviously piano. Um, So the things I teach, though, include large lectures like the history of rock and small sort of more intimate lab type courses like class piano. So class piano works well at our university because we have two labs, labs that are filled to the brim with keyboards, fully weighted 88 key keyboards, 16 of them in fact, all together. So the way we do this is kids who have to take class piano are typically music majors or music minors. And uh, these music majors could be performance, but piano is not their primary instrument, or uh, they could be in the education uh, music ed degree. Uh, or any number of other degrees within the School of Music. And uh, they have to take this sequenced course. Uh, We have four full semesters. Some students have to take all four um, and some only have to take two. And uh, under normal circumstances, they would also get to practice in the practice rooms, which are located in the basement of the School of Music. (laughs) So uh, when the pandemic hit, we lost a few things. We lost the lab, which has equipment in it that I've never seen a home office have. Uh, The fanciest and probably most expensive of which is the switchboard. (laughs) Makes me sound like I'm an air traffic controller. (laughs) Uh, The switchboard is actually really cool because it allows the instructor piano, the primary piano, and only one or only two pianos with their headphones to interact with each other. So it could be that I hear only the person I chose and they don't hear me if I'm super sneaky, (laughs) or I hear them and they hear me, or I can pair two kids together so they can hear each other and they can work simultaneously in the room with a bunch of other students working in pairs without anyone's audios interacting with each other except for the pairings that I made. So the switchboard is super cool, super expensive, and irreplaceable in a way. Uh, Plus, of course, then they lost the ability to practice on campus. So we lost a number of things, and that was probably our first big challenge, was making sure we could come up with how do we replace that And then the next big challenge was, how do we teach an art that is easiest learned in a 3D environment? Because it's not quite the same as, say, mathematics, where if I replicate a whiteboard, you can understand how I would do the equation. No, I sit. I am a physical being. And in some ways, what I do is dance in as much as it is pressing the correct buttons in the correct order. (laughs) And so um, trying to figure out how to make this four-walled 2D image work was the second half of our challenge when we went virtual. And trying to make that work for my students too so that I could understand them as 3D humans at their pianos and help assess how they can better their own work at their instruments. I, I don't know if I'm supposed to keep going. <laughs> well, I think that's great. No, that's super to do. Um, so let's, let's proceed and let's just proceed in reverse order. So uh, Sonia, you've explained the challenge really nicely. Um, what'd you do? How'd you make it work? Well, uh, we all had whisperings that this might happen, right? I I certainly had a a few whispers from a few colleagues who had heard things in meetings that weren't official yet, but uh, we sort of knew we were gonna all end up at home at some point. So my first challenge was before we all get sent home, how do I make sure that every student has the keyboard they need? Now, in a lab setting, we have 88 keys because a real acoustic piano has 88 keys. And having that whole set of keys means that you have a range of high notes and a range of low notes that not every electronic keyboard has. So the first thing was um, sacrificing some of those things. We, 
we decided we needed everyone to have one. What that one looks like, we can deal with that afterwards. <laughs> Uh, and our primary concern was the piano majors. Uh, and I have to give all credit for this to my incredible colleagues, uh, Tina Chong and Karen Fullingstad, because they took sh really good care of the piano majors and made sure that they all had solid situations to return to, including some kids who were home insecure. And I mean, fitting a piano into your lifestyle when you are home <laughs> insecure is a real challenge and they came up with um, amazing things for these kids so fitting a Sorry. piano into your lifestyle period is a challenge <laughs> you're uh, you're definitely not wrong when my husband and I moved here actually um we own a seven foot baby grant I laugh at the word baby <laughs> I have a seven foot baby <laughs> So, uh, and it weighs more than the whole family put together. So my seven foot grand actually lives on campus. We put it in one of our offices because like you said, it's, it's not a small thing to put in your life. <laughs> um, but so after that, uh, I had a few contacts within the K through 12 system in San Diego who had been working with through the community music school to help come up with equitable ways to get keyboard instruments in the hands of kids whose parents were not overflowing with money to just spend on the, on the drop of a hat with, with piano lessons. Uh, and so I was able to make some connections really quickly to make sure that all of the class piano kids had something. Now, some of those somethings were not as elegant as other somethings but everybody had something. I think the best one that required a little more maneuverability was when someone said, hey, I already own a keyboard, hey, uh, but one little thing, Dr. S, it's missing the D that's an octave above middle C. Is that gonna be a problem? <laughs> I, I asked, I mean, as a, as a way of demonstrating how difficult that is, try to make a sentence that never uses D. I just did it, but it takes some thinking. And the more you have to think about it, the more you realize, oh, yeah. oh, shoot, that's really hard. So then looking at all the repertoire that we had planned for the semester, a lot of things had to get dumped or changed into new keys. And I learned on the fly how to do transpositions on a new software, which was really fun to learn. But I've made a lot of errors and sort of figured things along the way. Uh, and then coming into the fall semester, thank goodness, we had two months for me to go out and get out into the community and, and do it properly. Not so much of a rush job. In prepping for the fall, I contacted every single instrument dealership that I could find with basically within a 50 mile radius. And I asked them what pianos they had in store. And I made some appointments to go in person if I needed to. Everybody's masked and only one person goes in at a time. I tried out their inventory. I made records of what people were renting or, or selling for. And uh, we sort of, we put these lists together and we also simultaneously asked the school, hey, can we come up with some kind of budget? You know, we, we know we have rentals for these other kinds of instruments. Our, our students in, in class piano are hit inequitably in this way. And, and is there any way we can do something about that? And, and the, the school's administration really helped out. Um, they immediately jumped in. They figured out how they could come up with some money. It wasn't all the money, but whoever ever gets all the money. <laughs> uh, so we got enough money. And then we, we were very, very careful about what we chose to spend that money on. And, uh, and now we're in a situation where we can loan things to students. And we can say, look, if this is going to be a hardship, you need to tell us as soon as possible. And we have X number of ways that we could go about this. So we're really we're in a much better situation now than, well, certainly than we were in in the spring. And the fall was 
a considerable bit easier than the spring too. Yeah. That's amazing. So Linda, what, what was, uh, what did you do to, to shift to virtual? Um, well, when we went virtual in two days last spring, we all went virtual two days last spring, which was uh, a nightmare. Um, I did canvas the students and ask them, since it was such a novel environment and there was so much anxiety and stress involved with all the students and including all of us, um, I asked what would be, uh, how could I make this class still a lot of fun and how could I make it less stressful? Because all the personal lives were all topsy-turvy. Uh, lots of things were going on, not just school, um, but the work, school, personal lives, et cetera. So the students basically um, wanted to work independently. And that's the feeling I got in the spring. So I made packets and I did um, different activities for them to do at home with, uh, they didn't have to be locked into a time frame with me. They could do it at their own pace. So for the fall, over the, the summer before fall semester started, I spent the whole summer um, filming and um, zooming, doing PowerPoints that I zoomed over uh, with the different science experiments that they needed to learn. So I would uh, videotape some of them and they could watch them whenever they wanted. So I teach a, a lecture at noon. I teach a lab at 9 to 11.40, a lab from 1 to 3.40 and a lab from 4 to 6.40. So they didn't have to be locked into their lab time. They could do it whenever it was convenient for them because they had so much on their minds and they were so um, anxious and uncertain. Um, and so over the summer, I filmed um, the science experiments that um, I felt that they needed to know that they were the most important ones. I filmed some and then some of them I did, I, I brought them into my kitchen, I showed them my kitchen and then I did, I took photographs of step-by-step -step of each of the, um, the procedures, each step of a procedure of a, of a science experiment. Um, and then I would do a zoom, uh, zoomed over on the PowerPoint and explain what the steps were. And then I assigned them a, an experiment that was similar that would reinforce the science concept that they were to do at home. And what I tried to do was make it such that they didn't have to spend uh, a lot of money. They had to spend a little bit of money, but not very much at all. Um, and things that we felt they didn't need to purchase, like pH paper and cheesecloth and things that they would never use again. We uh, Renin tablets to make cheese. We um, put, put together a little bundle and sent that to them. So each student received a little package with their Renin tablets and their cheesecloth. I did ask them to buy uh, a very inexpensive kitchen scale because I knew that would be something that they would use in their career. So I didn't feel like that was um, putting them... Uh, in uh, financial straits. Plus, it was I think eight ninety nine. It was not a big a big purchase. And I tried to keep um, the items they needed in their experiments uh, really inexpensive. Like they do this thing called the line spread test, where they put a food product in a tube and watch how it spreads out, and they measure viscosity. Well, I said, don't throw away your a, a toilet paper roll. <laughs> We're going to use a toilet paper roll to do the line spread test. So I tried to make sure there were things in their home that they could use and didn't have to go purchase. And then whatever they made, they got to eat. So they were pretty stoked about that. Yeah, and I, I gave them the option to um, bring in family members. Uh, if they had a friend that lived close by, do their experiments together. So that would cut down on costs if they had to buy anything. And I said, and then whoever you're living with, teach them the, the science experiment bring them along with you. So um, so they had to watch me do an experiment, then they did their own experiment. And when they did it, they would take pictures, like step-by-step step of what they did. And that would be submitted into their with their packet that they turned into me. And it was really cute to see um, uh, who they included in their experiment. One student always had her dog as the, ta uh, the taste tester. So it was so cute. Because here was Buster trying out her, uh, what was it, uh, corn and pea soup or whatever. Um, and he was sitting there trying it out. And she included that picture. So one of your questions is, how did you create a sense of community? When they did their experiments, they included pictures and they did a write-up. 
Um, and then I would always comment when they turned their assignment in, I'd go, who was that person doing? Who was the person stewing the soup? And what's your dog's name? So we kind of uh, communicated a lot with um, the different experiments. And so they would have to turn a packet in. There was uh, two experiments a week, uh, two packets they had to do a week. Um, and they had pre-lab questions, post-lab questions. They had to watch me do an experiment. They had to do their own. I tried to find scientific articles that backed up their experiments. Um, and then there was always a worksheet of some sort because I wanted to make sure that they used the two hours and 40 minutes. But they didn't have to turn that packet in until the next exam. So they could work at their own pace and then get the, all their work together and turn it in at the next exam date. So they could do four labs on a Saturday when it was convenient for them. A lot of them, some of the students told me they were the only person working in their family, that their family members had lost their jobs. So I wanted to make sure that they weren't locked into my time frame, that they could work, they could help their family members uh, or do whatever they needed to do on their own time just to get my work, the, the work that was due to me and on, uh, on time during the exam date. I also set up, I had a, a, a nine o'clock TA, a one o'clock TA, a four o'clock GA, graduate assistant, and they were available all the time. Um, my nine o'clock TA Zoomed uh, every Monday with the class. My one o'clock TA Zoomed every Wednesday with the class. And then my four o'clock GA Zoomed four o'clock with them. And then he also set up Discord which as a platform so that they, he was available to, for them all the time. Um, and then I Zoomed with them once a week with uh, office hours. And then they could set up a private Zoom session with me whenever they wanted. They could send me an email because I check my email every five minutes. They could send me an email on Tuesday at nine o'clock saying, can we Zoom? And it's like, okay, I'll put, I'll put a link up in five minutes and we can Zoom. So they had me, I was available. 24-7, as was the, as were the TAs. So there was a lot of connection between the class and myself. Um, there was a lot of work, and they had to do it independently. Um, but I, I, the feedback I got is that they didn't feel the anxiety and the stress since it was set up as an independent class, though there was a lot of connection that was going on. So that's how I set it up in the fall. Um, they, yeah, um, I think that's, that, that I, I got a lot of positive feedback. That's terrific. I love the, I love the idea of reinforcing the content and the concepts of the course by having them watch a lab and then do something different at home, not trying to do right. the same thing at home, but do something different that explores the same concepts. I think that's, that's super cool. Right. And they, they had so much, they, they had fun explaining to their family members what Renin tablets do. That's how you make cheese, you know, and they made cheese with acid. They made, made cheese with an enzyme and they compared the difference. And all they needed was a tablespoon of vinegar. So yeah. we kept the cost to a minimum. And yet um, they got to do a lot of different science stuff. They loved the, the candy lab. We did candy and ice cream. Um, and they sent me pictures and it was close to Christmas. So they, they made Christmas presents. They did, you know, um, yeah. Toffee for, for family members and caramel corn. And it was really cute. Food is fun. Um, I know. Food Aaron. Is fun. <laughs> Aaron, say more about, uh, about what you did and how you solved the challenges of that, in, that you encountered in your class. Yeah, so um, again, normally I it's taught, I've always taught it as an in-person class. Um, so um, what I decided to do was make it kind of a hybrid format in the sense that I created um, packaged modules for the students for each week. And I'd always made sure that they were up there on Canvas um, at least a week in advance um, to enable students to kind of work you know, somewhat at their own pace. Um, and so they, they would work through the modules, but then we always met every Monday. So my class was scheduled Mondays and Wednesdays. And so we always met every Monday. Sometimes I lectured a little bit. Um, sometimes I reviewed some materials, but it was a great way to connect with the students and ask questions about the material. 
And the attendance was pretty good. I mean, I had 180 students. I never expected all 180. I don't even think I got 180 on day one. Um, but, you know, but but still, there it was pretty great. And then we always recorded. I always recorded those Monday sessions so that students could go back later and, and watch them. And I got feedback that people actually did do that. I wasn't sure if people were going to do that. but And I think the students appreciated the flexibility in that regard because, you know, I, you know, we just, we all didn't know the extent of what people was happening in people's lives. So even though, you know, they had signed up for my class, it didn't mean that they were necessarily going to be able to show up for those, for those sessions. So I think that flexibility was, was critical. Um, And I also just didn't, wasn't sure about just because it is a lecture based class, like having to lecture and getting through all the material on Zoom and anyway, so I think that worked out well. Um, so, and then in terms of the assignments, um, again, as I as I noted to you guys, I um, was able to switch to kind of a, um, a distance observation tool using the webcams. And so what I was able to do is, this is where I think, um, when we think about community building, not only in the classroom, but then also relying on your broader networks and communities beyond SCSU. So, I'm pretty active in social media and Twitter, and there's like a Facebook page, Teaching College Anthropology, and people share all sorts of ideas. And it's a great way to stay kind of connected with your peers and colleagues, but then also like share ideas, right? Because we're all kind of dealing with these same things um, around the world, really, in terms of instruction. So I had come across a list that somebody had posted about um, webcams for wildlife. So not just primates, but, you know, kind of all over. And so then what I did is I spent some time looking, basically going to every single one of those URLs and checking out the webcam and thinking about what I wanted to do and what would work and not work and kind of looking at the enclosure and seeing, oh, that's not going to be so good. And so then I, I basically curated that list to a smaller list and then gave students the option of choosing because, you know, students often come into the class like, oh, I love gorillas or I love this or whatever. And so it gave them an opportunity to choose. It also gave them an opportunity if, you know, if the technology wasn't working on one primate species, they could just switch to another one because that, that, that actually happened a number of times. Um, yeah. And so that gave them the opportunity to, to, to still do the, um, the observations. And then during the lecture course, what I was, the lecture components, when I was actually training them on actually how to do these observations, this is where I was able to bring in my field research. Cause I, I, and while I have connections and, um, and networks with the zoo and the wild animal park, I'm a field-based researcher. So I, I do most of my work in Indonesia and I've been fortunate over the years to be able to collect video footage um, of these guys behind me. Um, and so I use some of that video footage in class to, to get them to learn how to do these, um, these methods. And that was fairly interesting. It's one thing to do it in person where you can gauge everybody's reaction and get a feel like you can look up and everybody's face is like, you know, like I, and then I am clear, okay, people don't know what they're not understanding. And then I go over it, but on zoom, you know, not everybody has their camera on and, you know, and so that was, that was challenging, but you know, the students were really good about using the chat function, um, which I had going and my ISAs were really good about, um, paying attention to that as I was trying to navigate the, the lecture part of it. Um, so yeah, it wasn't ideal. A lot of students um, noted, oh, I wish we could have gone to the zoo in person, but I think they appreciated the, the opportunity to still try and do the observations. And, and mm-hmm. some, you know, like some of the cameras are quite good and, and, and actually the ones at the San Diego Zoo are the best. Um, there's, a, there's one of the webcams is on the orangutan in Siamang. It's a mixed species exhibit. And it's really close up and usually get a really good view um, and they move them around. So it works out well. Where I had to be um, strategic in terms of the assignments is that one of the constraints with using the webcams is that they, um, many of them, you can, like whoever goes onto the website can actually manually move them. So let's say a student is trying to do a five, five minute observation period on a primate, on an individual, but then somebody else logs in and they move the camera away. And so then that would that would disrupt their observation. So I got feedback from the students as we were going along the semester with their assignments about some of the issues they were having and was able then to kind of shift 
you know, it's like, okay, instead of doing this type of method, use this method, which is much more amenable to those kinds of um, challenges. So I had to be kind of a flexible in the course of the semester in terms of those assignments, um, which, you know, sometimes we don't like to do. We like to have things set and kind of set up, but that, you know, I think we all had to be really flexible this semester as we dealt with different challenges. And May, tell us some more about, um, yeah, about about your solutions and, and yes, <laughs> um, yeah, the challenges I had right for this project, um, as I introduced at the beginning, the the course is PSFA five hundred one. Um, international studies research. I, a little bit more background is that uh, these are the students that I taught the semester before, or maybe two semesters before, um, oh, in so the introduction already, class. Pardon so me. You already knew you already knew your students. I already knew these students. So this class is unique in the sense that it did not exist before. <laughs> So it's not so much of a comparison of before and after, but this is an entirely new course. Uh, supposedly, this is the time that they are abroad collecting data with international college students, most likely. Um, but I taught them before they typically go abroad, so they already had a research design for a topic of their choice that's typically related to their major. Um, <clears throat> so coming into PSFA 501, uh, I knew what they were supposed to do, uh, but when they come in, we were hit by the pandemic situation. They're no longer able to travel. They are just, everything has changed. Uh, this means that some of them, um, obviously they'll change their travel plan, but some of them had to change their topics because they're not able to go and conduct the study that they designed. So what I did was to set up um, the first um, two or three weeks um, with individual consultation with each student to talk about how they were going to update their plan. And if they need to switch to a different topic or, or tweak it to something that's doable. Um, so that's something I did in the first part of the semester just to work out a feasible plan for them to be able to collect data and complete the, the project in order to graduate with the minor, because otherwise um, they could simply just drop the minor. Now, at the time um, when the travel ban came, the university actually uh, gave us sort of the direction that you could simply waive their study abroad because we have many um, uh, departments and schools, colleges that require study abroad. So with the ban of uh, travel, um, many units simply could waive the study abroad requirement. However, for students in the international studies minor, going abroad is not, not just being abroad, they're actually conducting research. So even if I waive this course, they're not gonna be having data going into the capstone course. So that's the reason we had to come up with some idea. And I, I'm very uh, grateful for the College of PSFA to, to see this as a viable option and gave us the support and the green light to, to add this course on a temporary basis. I actually hope that in the future we can keep this for students who are not able to go abroad, but that's another story. So coming to the challenges that I had, the, one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest one, is the time zone difference. Mm -hmm. uh, because these students are looking to interview or contact international students normally uh, who are staying on campus. But now they are scattered all over the world. So I don't know how many of you participated in the Summer Institute, you know, moving virtual. <laughs> A lot of you are nodding. I remember I raised this question, um, but this is something I had to deal with in the fall because just about, well, I would say over 75% of the students, the international students, were abroad. So they were scattered in South Africa, in Europe, in Asia, in, in South America, just all over the places. So, and the majority of the students were from Kuwait. Uh, at the time of my class, uh, is there midnight? 
I had students who are um, uh, the time of the class here is there 3 a.m. Students from India, <laughs> uh, 3 a.m. they had to get up. Uh, so it created a lot of challenge just for the international students to attend class alone. Not to mention that, you know, here's this added element for my students to try to get them, <laughs> to interview them. So uh, after we consulted about how to update each specific topic, um, then they spent some time working on updating their literature if there is a topic change, uh, and then updating the data collection method because the plans um, have to be changed now. Um, after those stages, it's a matter of finding the international students who are committed at that late hour very often uh, to be interviewed uh, on these topics. Um, not to mention just the general morale for international students. We're not matched up to our regular times because this is a time they feel like they couldn't even travel to SDSU uh, for visa uh, issues, for all kinds of issues. Um, the pandemic, to say the least, right? Um, all of that. So they are... They were working with the mentality that I don't know if I'll be able to continue with this. Um, I'll get through the course and see what happens. A lot of the students didn't even get to come here in the fall, even with their admission. They, you know, deferred to a later semester. Some of them are with me now. So that was the situation in the fall. So I would say the biggest challenge was uh, the, the motivation for international students to be involved in this project and for my students to be able to collect data. Um, yeah, and then, um, so the way that I um, uh, cope with, with it was to create, there was a lot of coordination that was needed. Uh, there were four sections of international students. Uh, the classes were at different times. Then I have this uh, one section of uh, 501 students who needed to participate uh, in these sections and identify the students who were scattered in all four sections, but they needed to identify at least 10 students um, uh, from the same culture so that they can do a focus study in that culture and then compare that to the US. And that's the nature of their project, of all their project is a cross-cultural comparative study. So they need to pick one culture and then compare that with the U.S. Now, this one culture, they need at least 10 uh, students to interview. That just created a, a lot of uh, difficulty for them. Um, so that's so the... Would you, that, mm -hmm. would you do something different in the future to to make the research still robust, but make it easier to find enough yes. people yes. to interview? Mm -hmm. Very good question. That's actually going on right now. Um, I don't know if uh, anyone uh, of you are aware that there is a COIL program going on on campus. Uh, COIL is uh, Collaborative Online Learning, um, so C-O-I-L. That's uh, based in SUNY, and I'm part of that program for this purpose, because we had four sections of international students in the fall. In the spring, we have a much smaller population of international students. Right now, in my, in my international student class, I have five students. Oh dear. So, and that's not gonna work for this project. Um, so what I'm working on now is um, I'm in the COIL um, Foundation Workshop um, trying to partner up with an international institution so that we could offer a mutual um, project both in my class and in their class abroad uh, so that their students can talk to my students to learn about American culture at the same time. My students can reach out to these international peers and be conducting their interviews um, for their project. Um, Right now, I keep saying right now, today, right after this meeting, <laughs> I'm meeting up with my partner in Chile 
okay. uh, to <laughs> hopefully set up a project uh, so that um, you know he and I can. He teaches English. Well, this is not a done deal yet, but just so you know the idea, he teaches English there, and he's looking for a partner in a English-speaking country uh, so that his students can practice English and learn about other cultures. And that is a perfect matchup with my students who are looking for international students to inform them about different issues, uh, such as, for example, uh, some of my students study how college students' education has been uh, changed or altered due to the pandemic situation in the U.S. versus another culture. Uh, what are the recycling patterns uh, in different cultures in the U.S. versus another culture? Uh, or what makes people want to learn a second language? You know, why do American students want to learn a second language? Why do other students want to learn English? So these, uh, we have many, many different topics because our students in the minor all major in all kinds of majors on campus. So, uh, and these topics are relatable to international students, and we're hoping that my students would be able to reach students in Chile, hopefully, and be able to conduct their study. I just found out, though, this is going to be another challenge, that the, um, the university system there has a very, obviously their seasons are different from us, <laughs> we know, but their semesters are so off. <laughs> I, I'm looking at the spring semester here, hoping that my students will be, be able to collect data about mid-semester in about March. Their semester starts uh, March, in mid-March. Oh, dear. And then the professor needs to know who's in their classes and uh, what English level they are, and he would need to select students to participate. So he won't be able to let me know whether I have a group or how many I have until the end of March. And then, as we know, we have just the month of April to work with. You know, once we enter May, it's pretty much final exam, right? So that's going to be <laughs> posing another challenge. But I'm, I'm, um, I'm committed. I think this is something that um, is going to work one way or another. We're also exploring the possibility of a third partner uh, because at his institution, at, at this uh, potential partner's institution, they allow a three-way um, collaboration. Mm -hmm. So if we uh, can identify someone in Europe, for example, wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> having a European institution, a South American, and us, and then we can, from my point of view, for my students, we can tap into these different populations for my students to be collecting data. So I don't want to limit them to just one culture. And not all topics are suitable for the just one culture. So this way they can have some variations. At the same time, of course, we're also working with other available I mean, we still have international students here. Right. And I'm working through our International Student Center and trying to reach more international students on campus who can help out in this project. So I'm very grateful to the, the network that we have um, and, and everybody's trying to help out. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about all of these projects as, as we've been talking is that in some ways, all four of you are working on how to do labs virtually. They're really different kind of labs, mm -hmm. you know, but it's like human subjects research and studying a culture. They're, they're all, I don't, I don't need to go on and on. Mm -hmm. Is there... Um, and I know this isn't one of the questions that I originally po uh, posed to you, but is there, if, if you were a team to try and solve the problem of labs in virtual classrooms or to try and identify what virtual experiences can be used to reinforce labs once we go back to face-to-face -to -face instruction, what would you say to your colleagues? Um, 
to our colleagues in the like, same. What, what are the lessons that we can? Are, are there things as you listen to each other? Are there things that are common to lab to teaching hands-on, face-to-face kinds of lab experiences that we can actually use once we go back to face-to-face? Are there things about teaching kind of lab hands-on things that are, are universal across all of your really dis- disparate curricula? I think let's simplify it. Let's just think about well, like what, what of the things that you've done in the past year do you think would be helpful even when you go back to face-to-face? Mm. Um, I'll start with this one. I'm actually thinking that that this is um, a potential alternative that I think we can add to our current program. Uh, the international studies minor typically requires all students to go abroad, which is rightly so. It's international studies. You need to study abroad, and I still will push for that. But with this current situation, I think it's forcing us to think uh, alternative options. Um, We are moving from just strictly international or global to thinking about global possibilities, uh, global with local kind of possibilities. So um, in the future, I hope that if there is a way that I could continue, for example, with um, uh, the PSFA 501 track, I would like to offer it as an alternative for study abroad to service those students who are not what we consider typically in the elite group who are able to have the international experience. There are some people um, that I I, uh, come to know um, in the years of teaching the minor that are in the category that are limited uh, that they cannot go abroad. For example, DACA or, or dreamers, they're not able to leave the country and yet they want an international experience. So for those students, I think uh, this, this new way can offer them a path to get an international studies minor without having to travel abroad at this time when they're limited. So uh, that's one thing I think I'm, I'm gonna try to build into the future. What about Sonia, Aaron, Linda? Um, I, oh, Linda, go ahead, please. No, go ahead, no, go ahead Sonia, go ahead. I was, I'm going to say with a caveat first that if what I just say is garbage, Sarah, I trust you, you'll cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> so I think maybe one thing that I'm hearing from a lot of you is that timing matters. Uh, and for each of us, I feel as though timing is very different, uh, but still incredibly valuable to take up front and say, okay, Linda's students, your kids are working full-time gigs and they might have to do four types of labs back to back. And then that's basically like meal planning for the week. Yay. (laughs) And that's great. That's an awesome thing Mm -hmm. to have. And then be able to say, Hey, heads up your first whatever prep is going to take X amount of time. It has to sit in the fridge for this amount of time, et cetera. I I can't assume to know. Um, I can make toast. (laughs) So I can only imagine. And May, it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is trying to prepare your students for the expectations of how much time they're going to need with each of these people and how limited that time is actually going to be. Mm -hmm. And Erin, I'm guessing... There's probably a lot of, well, the creatures that you study determine how much time you need to spend looking at them and maybe what time of day or maybe what cycle that they are currently in or what part of their lives they're in will indicate to you when, where, how much you study and take a look at them. And for me, telling my students you can't cram playing the piano, (laughs) which now that this is in recording, I just want to put another plug out there. You can't cram playing the piano. I know I say this to my students all the time. It's not like you know a thing and then you know it forever. 
Mm-hmm. And even right. that is actually a little more complicated than that if we talk about short-term memory and long-term memory and on and on and on. But if we're talking about playing the piano, we're talking about many kinds of knowledge. There's aural, so you respond to what you hear. There's kinesthetic. Our fine motor muscles actually are doing the action that creates the thing that you then respond to. And there's that analytic part where you're actually taking in all the information that you visually see on the page and transcribing that into this finger is on that note. That makes sense. Timing-wise, that rhythm has to be this close together and on and on and on. And you're making all of these split-second choices and all of these skills get wrapped into one and that doesn't happen overnight. You cannot cram for playing the piano. (laughs) So a lot of us are being as upfront with our students as possible about this is the expectation and we want to work with you about what your lives look like now and make this expectation fit into your life. Otherwise, what, what is the point of this class? But at least being aware of that as instructors is a huge part of our responsibility to our students, I think. Well, along that same line with with timing, I think what I learned most is flexibility because of the chaotic lifestyles and because what's happening in their personal lives, I had to say, okay, it's not, it doesn't have to be due this Wednesday. Get it done. Make sure you have it done before the exam so I know you learned the material. I know you did the experiments, but let's all take a deep breath and let's all take our time and learn how to do it. So I had to let go of it's due at 9 o'clock, not 9.01. So that helped me become a little bit more relaxed and flexible. It did not diminish or lessen the the rigor of the class or the expectations or the demands or the assignments, but it just made me kind of go with the flow a little bit more and allow them to get it done at their pace. And so that kind of ties in timing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you, Linda. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, Linda, you're... You're very kind in that way, and I'm so glad that you are. You sound like you're an amazing instructor. I I also tell the joke to my students that, you know, unlike your other classes, no one will die in the future if you play a wrong note. Your stakes are very low. <laughs> or if you, burn, if you burn the toast. Or, you know, I've told them, if your experiment doesn't come, if you cooked, did something at home and it doesn't come out, take pictures of it throw it in the trash, give it to the dog, just admit it, and we move on. I want to give Aaron one more, uh, the sort of last word here. We've got two minutes. Oh, thank you. Aaron's got the floor. Um, echoing many of what um, what you guys have said here, too, I was definitely going to think of, it was going to mention flexibility, too. I feel like, you know, maybe... You know, this past year, um, I've tried to search for silver linings as much as possible. Um, And, you know, I think we were forced to um, think about building flexibility, a greater extent of flexibility into our courses because of the pandemic context. But it has made me think, you know, our students are probably going through a lot of things in normal, quote unquote, normal times. And I wonder if if by forcing us to, like you were saying, Linda, like, do we really care if they got it done by 9 p.m. on Friday night? Like, the important thing is that they get it done in preparation for the next thing, right? So maybe right. We, we maintain some of this flexibility that gives our student body, which I know a lot of our student body are, you know, they're working, they have families, you know, and 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 to, to, to make that flexibility more of the norm, right? And I've thought about even some of these remote possibilities. So May, you were talking about hoping to hang on to this course. I think that sounds like a fantastic idea for the reasons that you right. talked about. And I thought about it even with mine, I typically require them to go to the zoo, but the zoo um, used to offer very reasonable passes for students. When I first started here at San Diego State, um, they had, you know, it was like $25 a semester, and which was fantastic. Well, unfortunately, a few years ago, they, they did away with that seemingly making it seem like they were getting a better deal, which they were not, the students. And they require them to have a student membership, which is about $100. 
And some students can't, you know, they can't afford that. And so I struggled with that because I realized, because I also don't use a textbook. I try and keep costs down in my class. And um, so actually last year I did a whole program where I um, networked with the, with the zoo to have, to give students an opportunity to become an intern at the zoo in exchange mm. for free access right. to the zoo. And so, again, it was an additional thing I had to manage, and it actually proved to be um, quite frustrating at times because some students were fantastic, other students not so much, unfortunately. And that happens. But but I thought, you know, why not retain the the digital component, right, and give students the option if you would like to go to the zoo? Because some students are already members, right, or they can get discounts being a military individual or this, that, and the other, or their parents are there under their parents' membership, and then if, if students don't want to spend that money, they can do the virtual component, right? So maintaining, you know, that not only, in, you know, imbues flexibility, but it also increases accessibility, right? Um, which I think is, is important. So I feel like trying to focus on some of these silver linings has helped us get through. <laughs> this. Yeah, that's great. Area. That's good. Yeah. That's fantastic. Thank you all very, very much, both on behalf of our students and for joining me today. Um, Maison, Sonia Schumann, Aaron Riley, Linda Kopp, thank you all very much. And I, I look forward to seeing you again when we get to be face-to-face on campus. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. It's thank nice you, meeting Karen. you all. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye.